0: hello and welcome to moving iron podcast this edition of the moving iron podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors
1: when you partner with axon you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower we carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels we specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon.
0: Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. To Moving on our podcast markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial, out of Boca Raton. Authorities and nice that stuff to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how are you doing this morning?
2: I'm doing good. Never better. Never.
0: Never better. better. That's good, man. That's that's a pretty lofty statement to make there this er- this early on a Tuesday morning. Well, Sean is uh, comes on. We talk about what's happening here, and and Sean, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. And this this interest situation that we see. I don't want to say that the interest situation is is destroying the world because it's not. I think we're just having a hard time getting used to the new normal. So I guess as you look at what's going on in, in the treasury markets and you look at at where the strength of the dollar is at and how that stacks up against uh, the rest of the world and and how it how it prices our commodities when it comes to exporting equipment uh, not equipment grain and whatnot. What are you seeing? How do you think the markets reacting to that? And then we got this report coming up here. Not too long ago, because the government found some more money. So, right now it seems like
2: we're, we're you're a fighter that's been punched in the punched in the chin. You, you just got off the tarmac, and you're and you're you don't know where you're at because that's what's happened with interest rates. We haven't seen something like this for at least fifteen years. There's two sides of this, right? There's the side of the cost of capital going up for people that are that are indebted, either personally or corporation wise. The rolling cost, all the things we talked about last time, which is the banks, which, you know, that's the negative side. But remember, there's the other side. There's the people who have a lot of cash who now can generate lots of income on their cash at a very low risk. Um, and so can corporations. So NVIDIA, you know, that's or, or Google, it's sitting with $100 billion in cash. they are making a ton of money on interest on those, that cash. So there's there's a lot of income coming in from the cash side of the ledger um, and also, uh, so, you know, it's, it's uh, nothing is ever a one-sided story. Sure. The, 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 the narrative is, you know, it's the worst thing that's ever happened, but you know, the worst thing ever happened is that we had 0% interest rates. That's never was something that ever should have happened. So I think the, the, the way I, I think what the federal reserve did in the last communique there's a limit to how much short-term rates can impact the economy, right? Most everybody lives in the 10 to 15-year horizon with their loans, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a, a you know person. You know, we don't live in the, We don't. We're not borrowing money on a one to three-month basis. We're borrowing money on a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year basis. The problem has been that we've had this massive inversion in the yield curve, where the, the, the Federal Reserve kept moving rates higher, but the long end, the 10-year and the 30-year, were not moving higher. So they they got themselves to a the point where we've, we've put the maximum pressure we can on the short-term interest rate situation. But if we don't get those longer-term interest rates up, we're sort of becoming inert in our ability to impact inflation and the economy the way that we want. So they theorized, and they had made a great call, by the way, they theorized that they came out and said the economy looks strong. We don't see a recession and it's higher for longer that that would shake up the 10-year and the 30-year interest rates to go substantially higher because um, if 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 a recession is not coming and they're not going to lower rates anytime soon then the long-term rates are mispriced and show and lo and behold the day they came out with that communique that afternoon set off this sell off that's still going as we speak um yeah you know, we're approaching 5% on the 10-year and 30-year interest rates, you know, just a dramatic increase from the last Fed meeting. So they're getting exactly what they want, which is higher, longer term interest rates to do the dirty work that they no longer can do to get the economy to remain throttled down. Now, what is this also doing? The inverted yield curve flattening. So we were like this, and now we're going like this. Well, banks are, are, are going to lose less money now because this way they pay out a lot and they can't lend out. So they lose Brandy. money all, the, all day long. Now we're getting this. We're getting almost a flat market. Now, that's not great for the banks, but at least they don't lose much money anymore. At least they can, they can run fairly close to break even with a flat market, meaning they, what they pay out is the same as what they're getting in from new loans that they're issuing. And that's better for the banks now, obviously, what the banks want is this—you know, where, they, where that long-term rates are higher than the short-term, and then they can make money again. But I think they realize that you know, we can't have the banking sector in this environment forever, or else the whole banking sector is going to have to be bailed out. So, I think they're getting what they want, which is a higher long-term rate and a flattening of the curve. Um, and so, I think that we're going to that this interest rates backing up. I, I think we're going to stop around. A flat curve. I mean, I don't think the 10-year and the 30-year are going to go dramatically above the Fed funds rate. I think that's where we're going to be for a while. And then the Federal Reserve next move will be, when do we start steepening the curve? So when do we feel that this is doing enough to where we could start lowering the short-term rate and steepening the curve, which then starts the whole banking cycle, the whole credit cycle going again? Mm-hmm. I think that's where we're at. And it's not, it's not necessarily that all of this is like bad, it's just it's just that the markets are moving so fast that it's very hard for the market to adjust in that short t- time span and so i said like i said i think the market is sort of just stunned right now about what to do and confused and um, and we just need a we just need some time for these markets to start stabilizing to have the market kind of reposition itself and get ready for the next the next act and i believe the next act is you know they say higher for longer, but we know that the that the Federal Reserve forecast are probably the worst out there on the planet. Every time they say something, they get it wrong. So the fact they're saying longer for later probably means they're going to be cutting rates in the next three months. I mean, it's just whatever they say, just think something completely different. And that's what's ultimately going to happen. But the next move is going to be them doing this, and that mm-hmm. sets off a completely different cycle for risk assets commodity assets the dollar all these sort of things we're just not quite there yet and so at the moment um you know we have uh money rushing into the u.s dollar dollar soaring in value and that always is a depressant for commodities to go higher as we price ourselves out of the of in terms of our prices relative to foreign prices in terms of trying to sell stuff and at the same time uh it um it, it, it just makes the translational price in U.S. dollars in corn or wheat or coffee just makes it harder for the market to move higher. There is uh, there's no example of a runaway advance in commodities while the dollar is in a strong uptrend outside of brief spikes higher due to either weather or geopolitics. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, these trends are well underway, which means they're not just beginning. They're nearing the end. Um, and so we're just going to look for signs for reversals here, Casey. We need to wait. We, we want to see that day where the interest rate is, starts up and then turns down. You know, it's suggesting an exhaustion top where well, the dollar moves up and then reverses down. We're, 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 we think October, we're going to see that happen. We're going to see some big reversals that suggest that whatever has been going on with the capital flows, we've reached a crescendo <laughs> that will then normalize and change this panic situation that we seem to be in right now
0: okay all right so as you look at this upcoming report that's coming out here in um next week i think the 12th if i remember right um what what are your thoughts there and what do you think the market's going to show
2: well at least we're going to have a report i guess i mean some people would argue they don't they wish we never had a usd report but i still think having somebody say something is better than somebody saying nothing We've been through periods where the USDA doesn't put out reports, and the markets don't like that. So, at least for the next forty-five days, <laughs> we're going to get some more uh, USDA information. What happens after that, I have no idea. Uh, we'll have to see if uh, what happens. But anyway, uh, you know, as always, there's the camp that says uh, you know yields are going to come down dramatically. Uh, there are those that uh, you know say it's going to go up right i mean that's the market there's always two sides of every trade you know i don't believe we're going to see big knockdowns in yields i don't believe that the evidence supports that um you know i i think i i think the best case scenario right now is that the you know us incremental, they incrementally do things i think a modest reduction in yields is probably the likely outcome here uh, i don't think e- either one of those um if that's correct, I don't think any of that actually changes the market's view of where markets are at. I mean, I don't think uh, going from 173 to 172 or 171 and a half, I don't think that matters a whole lot to the corn market. And I don't think soybeans going from 50 and change to 49 and change. I don't really think those, outside of maybe a short-term one-hour trade from from algorithms, is going to matter much. Um, I, I think more importantly, you know, I, I think the market is settled in know that we have crop yields below trend the numbers are what they are we can argue what they are but that we're just sort of in a holding pattern wondering when is the harvest pressure season going to end and when are we going to begin the post-harvest rally season when we start to lock up the corn in the bin and when we start really looking at the outlook for South American weather especially weather in Brazil and you know are we going to have bumper crops again or might we have a different outcome? As you know, Casey, our work strongly suggests that we are going to have a a lot of worry and potentially, you know, crops come up short of the last couple of years. And and I think you know it's too early for that trade to happen yet. We need to get more into late November, December, but that's, that's actually not that far away in the market. You know, if you look at the weather patterns thus far, it's a dry weather pattern. We're, we have a dry weather pattern overall for Brazil. And I think that's a a precursor or a warning shot that that's the pattern. And 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 one thing that we highlighted in our report this week is, uh, you know, that the El Nino is really really weakening. It's not strong. It's not coming forward in the atmosphere like one would have expected or that many would have expected. And that means that 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 the um, El Nino Modoki um, uh, condition is advancing. And in a linear okay. modoki condition, advancing is is a much, much more caustic weather pattern for the northern half of Brazil. And if you if you draw that box, center Brazil all the way out to Mato Grosso, up and, and back and around, and you say, how much of soybean and corn production comes from that box? And we're, we're going to keep the southern Brazil out because they're getting plenty of rain, okay? Um, you're talking about about 60% of soybean production and about 75% of corn production comes from that box that I believe is going to be in the in the crosshairs of significant drought worries as we move into the December, January, February, March, April <laughs> time frame. And in the least, that should suggest weather premium needs to put in. And obviously, if we actually have a crop problem that lowers production, then obviously uh, it, 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 it puts the market more on edge the U.S. to finally deliver on a big crop for 2024. And it does not look like that there's much hope that that's going to happen, according to our work. It looks to us like we're having El Ni- uh, La Nina coming back for the summer of 24. And that is not likely going to produce the kind of weather that we would need to have trend line or above trend line yields. Um, and then the question becomes, it, it, does it, does it, does, do we finally get the, the right combination to create the major crop problem? We've danced around that for the last three years. We've danced around it. We've had certain areas that have had, you know, drought that's been – but we haven't we, had we have had the major crop problem. We've had below trend line yields. The Gleisberg cycle that we've been talking about for a while um, is highly – you know, is set to deliver – if it repeats after, uh, if it repeats again after eleven mm. centuries of repeating, twenty four twenty five is are the two most highly probable years for that, and so we're going to be on the lookout to see which one of these years has the right combination to provide potentially that kind of outcome. And obviously, if Brazil gets into trouble and the U.S. gets into trouble, crop prices would have to then adjust accordingly.
0: Awesome, good news. <laughs> Good news. All right, all right. So, looking at that's, that, was my next question I was going to ask you about your your client model? But you kind of already went through that. What that looks like, and the report, well, we showed uh, on we,
2: we showed <clears throat> on this week's report a, a chart of the El Niño Modoki index, which is the difference between central sea surface temperatures of the Pacific and the east. Mm-hmm. And we and we showed the, that chart for the beginning of two thousand and twenty three to now. And there's been a big, big surge. Meaning, with the, the, what you want to see is you want to see the the, the center warming at a faster rate than the east, which means you want to see that line rising. It needs to rise to a plus 0.5 degrees Celsius, meaning that the Central Pacific needs to be 0.5 degrees Celsius warmer than the East Pacific. We were at like a minus 1.5, very, very eastern-based, and now we're at minus 0.65. So we've had a big surge off of that low. And looking at the trajectory, i just looked at the last couple of days, we're still moving rapidly in that direction you know, our view is that, you know, by the time we get to December, we're going to see a plus 0.5 degree C premium to Central Pacific sea surface temperatures versus the east and carry on in El Nino Modoki through at least, you know, March, April. And, uh, and so everything that, you know, right now, that is what we wanted to see. It was a signpost that we've been putting out there that we needed to see that, ind- that index start to wake up and show a movement in, th- in that direction. And it is moving in a, in a dramatic fashion, supporting our overall view that that is increasingly likely that that outlook, which is highly contrarian, by the way, looks to be on track to, to, to occur. And if that's true, then Brazil is on the docket for some major weather problems this growing season.
0: That will, uh, that will dramatically change the way things look, especially where we're at with uh, ending stocks, the way they look and uh, the overall just supply that we have as you look at demand now. All that being said, as you look at supply and demand right now, do you feel like supply and demand have kind of caught up with each other and that we are at a point where things are are really in a a good spot, even though they're they're lower than what they normally are? But as far as kind of what we've talked about so far with what we've seen um, happen in the marketplace, do you feel like, the supply and demand curves have kind of come together and, and, and have formed a, a good relationship again?
2: Typically at this part of the cycle at harvest time, we typically make our seasonal lows, typically, not every time, but typically right. um, the supply side gets pretty crystal, right? We're, we're getting much more clear about quantity that we're going to have. Um, when you've been in a negative bear market, in commodities especially in grains for well over a year now the bias tends to be that people get more negative about demand because the high prices that we had for two years hurt demand right and it you know you don't <clears throat> snap your finger and just because you lower prices demand doesn't just wake up one day and say oh yeah we're gonna go you know you got to rebuild the demand so the bias that at this time of the cycle when we've had a 15-month decline in in grain markets, is that the market is too low. They're too negative on the demand side of the equation. They're projecting out much lower demand for next year based upon the high prices that we had the last couple of years, which is really not a logical thing to do because the low prices we have today is going to improve demand over the next 12 months. So I think the supply side we are normalizing. I think the demand side is the next shoe to drop in terms of having the market – uh increase their optimism over the kind of demand we're going to see for soybeans and corn especially as we get to the latter part of 20 of 23 into 24. so uh, I don't think we're calibrated yet on demand but I certainly believe we're calibrated on supply so the opportunity here is as the market has probably priced in the worst demand side picture they're going to price in for the next 12 months in my opinion our opinion um, there's only one way to go but up from here on demand side expectations meaning you only can get improve that well if you improve the demand and the supply is what the supply is then your balance sheet ending stocks begin to shrink and uh, and then what you thought was adequate supplies become less adequate and especially if we're going to worry about a brazil crop problem which they are you know a one you know they are a major player here Yeah. um then than having just adequate you know a lower you know it, it, we don't have a balance sheet like i guess the point i'm trying to make is we don't have a balance sheet that can absorb a major crop problem for brazil now if we had three billion bushels of corn and we had 600 million bushels of soybeans and ending stocks we probably could but when you have 200 and whatever the government said 65 million bushel carry out Soybeans, which I believe is too high, and they say we have 2.2 or 2.1 billion bushels of corn, which I believe is too high. I think ultimately what we're going to wind, wind up having is 200 million bushels carry up for soybeans, and probably closer to a billion seven on corn. When we correctly manage the actual demand versus the actual supply, that is not enough to handle, a, you know, a major crop problem in Brazil. And that's the point: is you know that 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 when the market starts to worry about Brazil, if I'm if we're correct about that, our balance sheets uh, will very, very quickly uh, you know, move into the danger territory. And that's where the 2024, December corn, 2024, November soybeans, 2023, that's where those balance sheets could um, really have to change a lot from the current pricing out on the curve there. And so, that's why we've been suggesting that those in the livestock industry, whether you're cattle, hog, or or dairy, you're looking at December 24 corn and November 24 soybeans um, and meal and all that sort of thing. I, I think that's a. I think we're at a spot where I was certainly would be wanting to make sure, you know, I protected my upside price risk on feed. Um, Given where I think we're at, I think that is something, you know, everything on the farm is risk management. We never know for sure what's going to happen. You know, we, we, no one can say, I know for sure this is going to happen. We can only speculate. Um, but we, we always have to weigh where we think the probabilities lie. And I think from where we're coming from with weather and geopolitics and monetary policy, election year, I, I think that this is a time to, to make sure you don't get caught with a dramatically higher feed price sometime later on in 24 when right now we have some of the most attractive meal prices and the most attractive corn prices uh in the dose deferred months that we've seen in several years
0: right on okay a lot of stuff a lot of moving parts right now sean a lot of moving parts more moving parts now than i think when i first started doing this podcast so it seems like there's just like everything has got some kind of hinge to it somewhere and none of it's it really doesn't matter what one other what like what other piece that you need to have to complete the puzzle. No one that doesn't seem to matter, matter anymore. You just kind of have these things that just are happening.
2: It's complicated. I mean, <coughs> and, 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 I'm, and and nobody has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. You know, we we try to synthesize all this the best that we can. But what I do know, and I try to I try to break this down in in the simplest way that I can. What I can say, if Brazil has major crop problem worries, that is under under most circumstances that I can conceive of, that is going to have an impact to grain prices. We can argue about the dollar. We can argue about interest rates. We can argue about geopolitics. We can argue about all kinds of things. And, But I'm pretty confident that if the one of the largest producers of soybeans and corn and, ex, and exporters of both in the world has serious crop worries... In this growing season, we're going to see uh, grain prices have to respond and put on weather premium if we're correct about that. Um, and so I so – I, 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 you know, it always, to me, always comes back to the weather forecast. We always lead with the weather forecast. Um, weather overrides all things if it's meaningful enough no matter what. Um, and so, you know, we, we spend most of our time trying to hone in on the weather, trying to hone in on our cycles that we follow to try to provide the best long-term probabilities of what we think is going to happen well before it happens so that you can take corrective action well in advance. And doesn't mean we're right every time about everything we say nobody can be, but our track record hasn't been too bad on predicting these weather patterns and what uh, happens over, you know, that six to 12 month time. We've been pretty good at it. And, um, and I think we're going to continue to be pretty good at it. Uh, and right now, with all that being said, with where we are today, so long as th- that I'm remotely right about a weather problem developing in Brazil, I think what I've just said about livestock producers needing to manage their feed risks is the right, um, you know, it, it's the right strategy for operators looking at their feed costs going forward.
0: Yeah, those feed costs are something that kind of a crazy situation right now as you look at what's what's going on there and what the, what the horizon looks like when you start taking a pick of that. So speaking of that, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this, the uh, cattle market took a beating last week, and kind of the first real beating they've taken in a while, I'm um, looking at how that's been just on a straight-up trajectory. Is that a end-of-month, end-of-quarter type of situation, Sean, or do you see some correction there that's coming that's more long-term?
2: Look, we, we, we've, been, uh, um, we've been too negative on this market a little too early, uh, like many. Um, so we're going to put that out there. You know, we've been – this market's gone up further and for longer than we had thought. But we've been warning about the fourth quarter for a long time. The cattle on fee that needs to come through the system in the fourth quarter is actually quite large and larger than last year. And when we looked at the price pattern um, going back 50 years and how overextended the market was – and you throw in all this panic over interest rates and the dollar, and you know the Brazilian cattle price falling and the Australian price. It just seemed to me like no market goes up forever. I know cattle markets is going to go up forever, right? It's going to go up forever. It's never sure. going to stop. Never going to go stop forever. Yeah. We're going to we're going to a thousand, going to a thousand, you know, ten dollars a pound. That's where we're going. I know it's it's never going to stop, but it actually is going to stop, and it's going to stop when you don't expect it to stop, and it's going to fall when you didn't anticipate to stop. And my job is to make sure that those that are in, that are paying attention to me, that want to pay attention to me, they don't have to pay attention to me, but if they want to pay attention to me, um, to provide them with uh, recommendations to keep more money home on the farm. And when you have the money that's on the table in the cattle business right now, after years of horrendous operating conditions, you have to, you don't have to, I believe you have to Uh, protect that. Period. End of story. Anyone that is is not protecting that is just falling prey to the bullish bias that falls, that, that, that befuddles every bull market in history that everyone thinks it's never going to end. They're always going to be able to sell before it falls. And of course, that's just folly. That never happens. You never sell before it falls. You only sell after it falls. And when the market's down 20 or 30 cents off the top, you have given your margin away now you have to sell and you and you miss keeping money home on the farm my view is you know you have to protect your margin you have to protect these cattle prices into next spring um and i'm sticking by that and no it doesn't mean that the that, that the supply side of the equation is looking terribly bearish next year it actually looks constructive it doesn't mean that we won't have some type of rally in the back half of 24 to provide another window of opportunity to sell. The point is everybody has to sell all throughout the year. And if and you don't want to you want to make sure you're not selling your your cattle from now through April at a level that's dramatically lower than it than it was when you had the opportunity to lock in a very healthy margin on the farm. I just think that is to me, you know, you're in there's not not every year you wake up as a producer in any part of the business, whether it's corn or soybeans or hogs, and say I can lock in a margin. But when you have the opportunity to lock in a margin and a very good margin at that, um, you know, th- thank the almighty Lord upstairs for providing that opportunity, and please take it. That's our view. It's
0: pretty good advice, Sean. I'm going to lie to you. It's, it's always easy to. to uh... Look to give horse in the mouth there a little bit on some of the stuff, and you're always going to get that extra nickel somewhere, right, Sean?
2: Yeah, so. you know it, it, it's always the it's always the corn farmer says I had my cell in at 7:51 it got to 7:50 and I didn't get filled. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know what else to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know what you mean?
2: But I can't tell you how many times that actually happens you know, two cents away and I didn't get filled. Now the market's down 50 cents. What do I do now? Just get yep. it done.
0: Yep. <laughs> For sure. All right, Sean, good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing over Hack Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that?
2: Our website is hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisor.com. We also have a Twitter page at ferradix 11 And we're not habitual posters. From time to time, we'll throw in some interviews and some ideas of things to let people know what we're thinking and doing and how we look at the world to see if our statistical, cyclical, correlated approach to looking at ag markets is of value to your listeners.
0: Right on. Well, Sean, I appreciate you being on the podcast. I mean, we'll talk again on Thursday.
2: Sounds good, Casey. Talk to you soon.
0: Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the ever so cleverly named YouTube channel. Just hold on, folks moving iron podcast, YouTube channel. No, just blew your mind about how, how creative that was. So check that out over there. If you want to see the video version of this, uh, go to, um, moving iron LLC.com for everything moving Iron related. You're going to have some big announcements here in a couple of months over the well over the next couple of months that are going to lead into some things about moving iron summit and other things like that. So check that out. Um, I can give you the dates for the moving iron summit. It'll be September, not September, November, uh, 4th through the 6th in Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, We'll uh, have a nice little thing to going on down there. Going to get a few things organized and, and shaped up. And also, I have more information about that here shortly. But there'll be a few other announcements that will be coming out as well. So um, pay attention to that. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour. We're Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron folks out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment.